Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Well, thank you so much for your good singing this morning. What a joy and what a pleasure to hear you today. So we've been studying the life of Joseph. Uh, He's one of those great Old Testament characters and uh, a real rags to riches story. He starts out uh, full of himself as a young, brash individual, convinced that God has given him a dream. He brags and boasts about it with his brothers and they're envious and jealous of him. And his family is so dysfunctional that, that the brothers wanna kill him. Now, I know there were times when I was growing up with my two younger brothers that we wanted to kill each other too, but they were serious. They actually wind up selling Joseph into slavery and he's carried off to Egypt and he suffers there for many, many years as a young man, estranged from his family, estranged from his brothers, far away from home and living in servitude. He's falsely accused while he's there falsely accused by his master's wife, accused of raping her when actually he never laid a finger on her. He was a man of great moral integrity. He never compromised his convictions in that regard and did not sin with her. And yet she accuses him of doing that out of jealousy and anger and has him him thrown into prison. And while he's in prison, he helps some of the other inmates that are there, and when they're released, they forget all about him and forget about the injustice of his situation, and they don't come to his aid whatsoever. And so here's Joseph languishing in prison, mistreated by this former master and his wife, and neglected and abused and estranged from his family, betrayed by them and carried off into captivity. And if anybody has a right to be angry and bitter and frustrated, you would say it's Joseph. And I know Hollywood has a genre of films, these revenge movies. You know, the woman's been spurned and her husband killed and the kid's hurt and she takes revenge. Maybe there's a man who, a little guy, who finally gets the means to get revenge against the bad guys. And you would think that this is the tee-up for a, a real revenge story. And yet that's not the story of Joseph. It's not about seeking revenge. It's not about getting justice at his hands. Rather, it's about him forgiving and letting go and not prosecuting the people that have been unkind and cruel to him. We see Joseph forgiving. And one of the reasons that he's able is that there's been a tremendous turnaround of events, a great reversal of fortune in his life because what happens is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who's had these horrible dreams and he doesn't understand what they mean, he learns about Joseph, that he's able to interpret dreams and he asks for Joseph to come. And Joseph stands before the king of Egypt and interprets his dream and recommends a course of action that he should take in order to prepare for the impending disaster, this horrible famine that's going to occur that's gonna just destroy all the crops and all the food stores and supplies of Egypt. Joseph says, you need to prepare for this. God is giving you seven years of plenty before seven years of famine. If you utilize that abundance of resources that you'll get during those years of plenty, you'll be able to handle the years of famine and poverty that come as well. 
Pharaoh appoints Joseph, the former prisoner, the former slave, appoints Joseph to become the prime minister of Egypt. And so here's Joseph starting out a story in a pit where his brothers have thrown him when they're getting ready to sell him into slavery as they were thinking about maybe even killing him. Joseph is lifted up out of that pit and lifted out of slavery and lifted out of prison and now he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. But all the while, as we're listening to this story of Joseph in the, at the end of the book of Genesis, the reader who's carefully following along the storyteller's uh, rehearsal of Joseph's life and all these terrible events and all this great fortune that's come to him, the reader is understanding that, you know, Joseph's still in a very deep pit. And nobody's ever pulled him out of that one. And the pit that I'm talking about and the pit that I believe Genesis is talking about is the pit of his bitterness, the pit of his anger, the pit of the drive of wanting to get revenge. Now, you might say, but you know, the Bible doesn't say, never uses the word bitterness to describe Joseph. Maybe he was never bitter. Come on. I mean, what's the nature of human nature? If you suffer all that injustice and it's not your fault and you don't deserve it and everybody's mistreating you, what is the normal human reaction in that situation? It's to get bitter. It's to get revenge. It's to take things into your, matters into your own hands and bring about your own justice. Everybody wants to do that. That's the normal human reaction. So don't tell me you don't think that Joseph was bitter. Certainly he was bitter. Certainly he was hurt. Certainly he was angry. And yet somehow, by the end of his story, because we're not quite there at the end, even though he's been promoted to become prime minister of Egypt, and as Dan said last week, that would make a great ending for a Disney movie, but this is not a Disney movie. Joseph has to deal with his anger and bitterness, or he'll continue to be a slave and a prisoner of it. And he will never, ever be able to lead his family in a way like the dream showed him that he would. Because remember, Joseph's dream was that his family would bow down to him. His family would honor him, the youngest of, of 11 sons. And then eventually, you know, he had a younger brother after him. But he's one of the youngest boys in the family of the, of the mother. There were several mothers in that family. And, and his mother was the... Yes, the favorite mother of the father, you know, the, the favorite wife of, the, of his father, but, but his brothers despised him and despised her. And somehow, Joseph is going to become exalted over all the rest of the family. And yet, the vision is not just that they would bow down and that he would be a leader, but that he would lead them in a way that would actually bless them and help them. And that has not come true yet in the story. How can Joseph climb out of that pit of bitterness and truly reconcile with his family? How is that going to happen? Well, I'm not so sure that Joseph was that concerned about it at first, because there's this interesting little detail of the story that was given just briefly at the end of, of chapter 41, where Dan was preaching last week. There's these incidental things, you know, Joseph has been promoted by Pharaoh and he's given a new wardrobe and he looks real official and rich now and he's given a new name and uh, he's now part of Egyptian nobility and he's given a new wife. 
the daughter of the high priest of the sun god, and, and there he is. I mean, life is good, and the prophecy, that the, the dream that Joseph has interpreted of the plenty and prosperity, that's come true, and his administrative designs and his leadership and stockpiling the extra grain, buying grain from the Egyptians and storing it away, buying it at a cheap price because there's such a surplus of it, He's he's making Pharaoh rich, things are going well, all this stuff is going on and we say, yay, Joseph. But there's something very interesting that Joseph does beginning in verse 50, chapter 41. Now this is on page 35 and I'd like you to turn there if you haven't already. But in verse 50, notice what it says, that before the famine came, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, his wife, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, I just want to remind you that you and I pick names for our children, our dogs and things like that. You know, we name stuff because we choose a name that we like. You know, it's, oh, that sounds like a great name. That's kind of one of those old vintage kind of names. That's kind of a name that maybe is part of our family's heritage, or maybe there's somebody in, in the news or sports, or, or maybe something in your past. You admire that individual. You take their name and give it to your child. We all do that kind of stuff. Or you just like the name. It rhymes well with your family or whatever. The ancient Hebrews, like the ancient Egyptians and other people of the ancient Near East, they named their children and they gave meanings to the names that were very significant. Maybe a certain event had occurred or maybe they had a a promise that they were claiming or something they were hopeful for, something that they believed that was a deep conviction in their life. And, And they would name their children based on those dreams or ideals or experiences or things like that. Names had meaning. And Joseph gives his two sons Hebrew names. Even though he's in Egypt, even though he has a new Egyptian name, he gives his son Hebrew names because he's remembering his heritage. He remembers that God is at work. And this is what he says. He names the first son Manasseh. And here's why. For God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name Manasseh means made to forget. Made to forget. So this is what I think is kind of funny in this passage, maybe even a little ironic. Joseph is saying, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house, but I'm going to name my son made to forget. So in a sense, every time he sees the kid and names his name, he's going to remember all the hardship and all the suffering of his father's household. So Joseph, I think, is a little bit in denial here. I can just forget what happened to me. Because look, I'm prime minister now. Look, everything I said is coming true. Look how rich I am. Look how powerful I am. Look at my beautiful wife. Look at my kids. Look at my power and authority. Look, the dream is coming true. I can just forget about all the hardship and suffering that I've endured. I can just let go of it. And we sometimes say that. We sometimes say that, you know, the weather was so beautiful this past week, I forgot all about 98 degrees and high humidity last week, the before. Because this week was so pretty. Or, you know, maybe we went without food for a while. Maybe the the restaurant food wasn't all that great. But then we finally had that great meal that was so wonderful that we forgot all about that other garbage we were eating. 
Joseph is kind of saying that. I've been promoted and I've been blessed in such a way by God that I've forgotten all about my suffering, but really, he still remembers it. You see, so often you and I say, and we say to others, but we say to ourselves, I just need to get over it and move on. Yeah, I'm grieving, but I just need to get over it and move on. Yes, I was hurt, I was molested, I was harmed in the past, but I just need to suck it up, get over it, and move on. The past is the past, and I can't change the past. I just need to move on. I just need to forget about it. And what Joseph is going to find is that God's not going to let him forget about it. God's going to bring the problem right to his doorstep. He's going to bring his family, who's hundreds of miles away, and Joseph hasn't seen for 20-plus years or more, God's going to bring them right into Joseph's own presence. And Joseph is going to have to deal with the hurts that he's endured. And he names Ephraim that name because God has really blessed him. And sometimes the blessings of God, we do kind of forget a little bit of the suffering. But again, even all those blessings don't make up for all the hurts that we've endured and all the suffering that we've encountered. So God is going to force Joseph to have to confront and deal with the hurts of his past. And he does that beginning in chapter 42 and then into verse chapter 43 and 44. He's going to bring several encounters Joseph will have as the prime minister of Egypt in charge of all these food stores. He's going to have to meet up with his family. In fact, where the brothers are living, where Jacob, his father, is living, where they're living in Canaan to the north and to the east, they're going through a drought also. There's a terrible famine going on there, and they've run out of food, and there's no more pasture land, and, and their families and their flocks and their herds, and they themselves are suffering because they're going through this famine as well. And they've heard that there's one place in the ancient Near East where there's plenty of grain, plenty of food available, and it's in Egypt. Why? Because Joseph wisely told Pharaoh to stockpile the food when there's an abundance so that you can be ready for when there's a famine. Save now and you'll be able to spend it later. We do the opposite. We spend now and then we don't have anything for later. And so Joseph has told that to Pharaoh. He did it. Now Egypt is able to endure the famine. And Jacob and Joseph's brothers hear about this and they say, we've got to go to, we've got to, go to Egypt. And so they do. They travel to Egypt, all the sons of, of Jacob, except for Joseph, who's already there, and the youngest brother of, of Joseph, Benjamin, who is now the new favorite son of Jacob. He's kept back home with daddy, with Jacob in, in Canaan. And the brothers travel, and they meet Joseph, and guess what happens? One of the first things they do is they bow down in front of Joseph, just like the dream. And they work through some things there, and Joseph begins to test them and find out he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And you might say, well, why wouldn't they recognize their own brother? Well, first off, he's dressing like an Egyptian, not just walking like an Egyptian, but he's dressing like an Egyptian, all right? So he's shaved his head. He doesn't have a beard. He maybe even has some of the makeup like you see in the, the paintings and drawings and statues of ancient Egypt. And he's got the headdress and he has the, the robe and such on, the jewelry. And he's speaking Egyptian. 
He's talking to them through a translator, and they're not at all expecting that their son, who they had just, you know, again was a brat, a teenager, who they sold into slavery, they don't expect him to be the prime minister of Egypt. They don't expect him to be full of all the power and honor that he has. And so when they're before Joseph and they're bowing down to him, they're thinking they're bowing down to some Egyptian official. They don't realize it's their own brother. And so there's Joseph. He's listening to them. He's hearing them speak in, in Hebrew. He understands what they're saying. He's speaking to them through a translator. And all this is going on. He's listening to the dynamics of the brothers. And he's finding out, do they really, are they, are they willing to admit they were wrong? Are they willing to care about their family, their father, their brother, uh, their other brother? Is, is my other brother, is my dad still alive? And Joseph tests them. They have to come back a second time in order to buy more grain because the famine is severe. And this time, Joseph had demanded, you've got to bring your younger brother back. I need to see him. And they do. Jacob is not willing to do it, send Benjamin, but he does that. He says, I'll send him. And so he comes. And so the brothers of, of Joseph and the youngest brother, Benjamin, they come, they come before Joseph and, and again they bow down and Joseph gives them the grain that they need and there's one last final test where Benjamin's life is put into danger. Joseph wants to make Benjamin a slave through uh, framing Benjamin for stealing something and Judah one of the older brothers comes to Benjamin's defense and says, I'm willing to take his place. Take me instead. Ironically, Judah was the one who said, let's sell Joseph into slavery. And here he's had a change of heart 20 years later and he's the one that says, you can take me. I'll become your slave. Just let my younger brother go free and go back to his dad. A real change of heart on Judah's part. It says at the end of chapter 40, Four, that Joseph is so overcome by emotion. These brothers have bowed down before him. They have admitted their wrong. Judah has offered to take the place of Benjamin. All this is taking place, and Joseph is so overcome by emotion that at the beginning of, verse 40, of chapter 45, in verse 1, we read these words, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Can you imagine how shocked they were? What? Joseph? Joseph, our brother the brat? You're the prime minister? Joseph, you're here? We've been talking to you? They are just utterly overwhelmed and dismayed by the whole thing. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to reserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. 
He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Do you see what's going on here? What's happened to Joseph? How he's been able to deal with this bitterness? He's not just forgetting what's happened. He's not just trying to, you know, turn over a new leaf, just forget about it and move on. He's not doing that. He is taking concrete steps to show that he has forgiven his brothers and he wants to reconcile with them. In fact, this whole idea of forgiveness and reconciliation, it's really a give and take proposition. Actually, it's more like take and give. And I'll explain what I mean in just a minute. But what I want you to notice is that Joseph, he's willing to take what they've done. He's willing to let go of his right to get vengeance and willing to let go of punishing them. He's taking that. He's taking the suffering. He's taking the injustice. He's taking the hurt and the harm and he's saying, this is what's happened. I accept it, not I approve of it or I deserved it or it's right, not that. No, not that at all. But instead saying, this has happened to me and it's part of my life and I can't change it and no amount of revenge or me inflicting my version of justice upon them is going to change what's occurred. It's not gonna make things right, but rather I choose to take what's happened to me and accept it as what's happened to me as well. Why is Joseph able to do that? I mean, is he crazy? Is he just likes torturing himself somehow? How is he able to do this? He's able to do this because of notice Notice this important detail that he keeps emphasizing with his brothers as he's talking to them. You sold me into slavery, he says in verse 5. You don't be dismayed over that because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Then in verse 7 it says, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then in verse 8, he says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then in verse 9, he says, hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all the, the land of Egypt. In other words, Joseph understood that he could take what happened because what had happened had come through the hands of God. 
What had happened, God permitted, God used, God blessed. Now, I wanna be really clear. It's not that God said to his brothers, you need to sell your brother into slavery. And he didn't say to Mrs. Potiphar, you need to accuse Joseph of being unjust and, 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 and raping you. You need to accuse him of that. And it's not that he said that. And it's not that he told the, the chief butler, the, the fellow that, that handled the wine cup for Pharaoh, you know, you need to forget about Joseph while he's in prison. He deserves to be there. No, it's not that at all. It's not that God approved of any of the wrong things and evil things that they did to Joseph and neglecting him and forgetting him and causing his suffering and heartache. No, God does spiritual jujitsu. You know what jujitsu is? You know, it's one of those martial arts, but I don't really understand it, but what I'm told is, is that you use the force of your attacker to throw them. They're charging at you and you just kind of give in. And you throw them using the weight and the force of their attack on you. You, you take it and you grab it and you just kind of, yeah, you're coming, okay, where are you? Like that, it's just a spiritual, spiritual jujitsu. And that's kind of what God is doing here. You choose to harm your brother, well, guess what? I'm gonna use that because I need to get Joseph to Egypt. So he's gonna become part of the slave caravan, and that's, I'm not gonna worry about how the transportation took place, but he's gonna be there in Egypt because he needs to be in Egypt. And you know what? He's such a successful slave, he won't be where I need him to be because he needs to be in prison, so I'm gonna arrange and allow someone to falsely accuse him not that she was doing right in accusing him because she was doing evil and wickedness. But I need to get Joseph into prison. And then I'm gonna bring these officials of Pharaoh and they're gonna tell him his dreams and I'm gonna give Joseph the ability to interpret the dreams and one is gonna die and be executed and the other is going to be released and restored to his position of honor and authority you're gonna be so grateful that you're gonna forget Joseph. Shame on you that you would forget someone who helped you like that and encouraged you in your time of great distress. But you know what, I'm gonna use that. Because it's not yet time for Pharaoh to have his dream and it's not yet prepared for Joseph to be ready to give that interpretation to him. And I need to orchestrate and put all the pieces on the board where they need to be so that there's finally a checkmate that gets Joseph to the place where he is able to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams and so that he can be promoted to become prime minister of Egypt. God used the wickedness of people that Joseph suffered. God used all that to bring Joseph to the place where he could be used by God to rescue his family. He's in Egypt, he saved the nation, and now he's saving his family as well. God is doing all of that. And Joseph understands that. Because Joseph sees that, he can let go. He can let go of what's happening there. He can let go of revenge. He can let go of inflicting pain upon his brothers, upon Mrs. Potiphar, upon the guy that forgot him. He can let go of that because he knew that God was in charge and working through all of that. But not only was Joseph willing to take the suffering and accept it as being his story and his life, he didn't try to get revenge for it, but notice what else he does in this passage. He tells his brothers, you need to go get my dad 
And you need to bring him and your families and your children and your grandchildren, you need to bring them all down here to Egypt and I will take care of you. You will live near me and I will watch over you and I will help you and I will protect you and I will provide for you. I'm going to rescue you. This is a famine. It's going to lead you to poverty. It might even lead to your starvation. But if you come here and you're with me, you'll be safe. You'll be prosperous. And our family will be rescued and preserved. Come and be with me. Joseph is not just letting go of getting revenge. He's taking what's happened to him and accepting that. But he's also giving. Not just taking, but he's also giving of himself. And he's giving the resources and he's giving the blessings and he's giving what they need to be rescued. And the thing is, you might be wrestling with, well, (laughs) hasn't Joseph already been giving so much? He gave up his freedom. He gave up his rights. He gave up his family. He gave up the loving relationship he had with his dad. He gave up his pride. He's working as a slave. He, He gave up his freedom. He's working as a prisoner. He's doing all this. He had to give up his culture, his heritage, his family. He's now an Egyptian. He's assimilated into that culture. Hasn't he given enough? And the answer is, if you just want to let go and take what's happened, he's given plenty. But if you want to reconcile, and if you want to build bridges, and if you want to restore what's been torn down by the hatred and violence and suffering, then Joseph needs to give some more. And he's willing to do that. He gives generously to his family. I will provide for you. I will take care of you. I will give you the best of the land. The thing I think is interesting too is that when he goes to Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh, hey, my family's come and they'd like to move here. Is that okay? Pharaoh says, sure. Fine with me. In fact, tell your dad, he can just leave all his stuff, all his possessions, all his property. He can just leave that behind in Canaan. He can come down on my wagons and I'll give him all new stuff, better stuff, Egyptian stuff. He can just move here and he's got everything he needs to set up housekeeping and have a good life. All he has to do is come and he can live at my expense and I will preserve and protect him, your brothers, their families, for generations to come. I will do that. Joseph is willing to give in order to help him that way. You see, if you're going to reconcile, if you're truly going to climb out of the pit of bitterness and you're not, you're going to let go of that bitterness and that hurt, you've got to be willing to take what's happened and accept it. Again, not to approve of it. Not to say I deserve it. Not to say it was fair or right, but I'm willing to take that it did happen and I'll own it. I'll take it. This is my story and this is my life. I can't change it. But beyond that, to let go of the judgment and the punishment that the people who have hurt you deserve, to let go of that because God's in charge. God's going to bring justice. In fact, He then moves forward and says, I'm willing to give. Not just forgive, but I'm willing to give because I want to reconcile 
and restore the relationship. I want you to come and be with me. Sometimes when we've been hurt by other people, we can say, I forgive them, but I don't want to be around them. I don't want them near me. You need to stay away from me as far as you, I've forgiven you, but I want you to stay away from me. Have you really forgiven them? (laughs) God's plan is to restore and reconcile as much as is possible with us. The reason he's able to do this, the reason he is able to do this is because he sees God's big picture. We see this over and over. God sent me here. God sent me here. God sent me here. God made me Lord of Egypt. God did this. It's amplified even further at the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. This is page 44, Genesis chapter 50. Here it's the end of Jacob's life and Joseph's life. It's 17 years later after Jacob and his and uh, his sons have moved down to Egypt to be with Joseph. 17 years later, Jacob finally passes away, and there's a big state funeral. They, they embalm Jacob's body and mummify it, and then there's a, a big funeral procession across the Sinai Desert, and they come around to the east side of Canaan, cross the Jordan River. There's a, another big state funeral that takes place there, and then they finally bury Jacob's body, and it's, it's Jacob, Jacob's body, and it's Joseph and his brothers and their families and all these high-ranking Egyptian officials. It's a, it's a big deal. It's a state funeral for, for, for Jacob. And then they all travel back to Egypt. And it's at that moment the brothers realize, here's the test. Has Joseph really forgiven us? Does he really want to reconcile with us? Because there's this nagging doubt in their mind that, you know, Joseph's just doing this because daddy's still alive. And once daddy's gone, what is Joseph going to do? Is he going to take his power and crush us? Is he going to get revenge? Is he going to bring about justice on us for all the wickedness that we have done to him? What is Joseph going to do? And so it says in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us, loathe us, and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. They can't face Joseph personally, so they say, look, you just need to send a message through one of the officials and say, daddy says you have to forgive us whether you like it or not. You have to forgive us. So please forgive their transgressions, their evil, and their sin. And the thing that's interesting is that this is really the first time in the story that the brothers are owning up to Joseph that what they did was really bad. Now, maybe they did earlier in conversation, but this is the storyteller includes it at this point. The words that they're using, there are three different words for the, the, the sins and the heart that they uh, committed against Joseph. They're, they're words that are talking about things that are evil and wrong, things that are crimes, criminal activities. And, and all that they're doing there, they're just saying, this was horrible what we did. And this was wicked. It was a crime what we did to you. But daddy says you need to forgive us. And it says that Joseph starts crying. And I kind of wonder, why does he cry here? Is he crying because 
shucks, now I can't get revenge. Dad says I can't. Is it that? I don't think so. I think it's more likely that he's crying because he's saying, you know, for 17 years, I've been trying to rebuild my relationship with my brothers. We were so, there was such animosity between us. There was so much hatred between us. They hurt me so badly and I was so proud and rude and brash. And I was hoping that when they would move back to Egypt, when I forgave them and when I gave to them, I was hoping that that would really restore the broken relationship. But you know what? They're still so scared it looks like it hasn't. And Joseph is crying over that. He wept when he spoke to to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we're your servants. They're so guilty. They've not dealt with their own sin. They're so guilty that they say, you know what? We don't deserve to be your brothers anymore. We made you a slave. Now we're willing to be your slaves. We recognize that. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. Don't be afraid that now I'm going to hurt you. Don't be afraid that I now still hold this against you. Don't be afraid that somehow I'm going to use my power and honor and might to crush you because I'm not. I'm not going to do that. Don't be afraid that I'm going to kick you out of Egypt. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid. For am I in the place of God? You see, this whole time, remember, Joseph is willing to take the hurt that's been inflicted upon him. He's willing to let go of punishing them back and getting revenge. And he's willing to give to them and he's willing to serve them and he's willing to help them and save them. He's willing to keep doing that because he has the the big picture from God. He sees that God has been orchestrating and working all of this out. And he says this very clearly, am I in the place of God? Is it my right and privilege to actually get revenge from you? No. Is it my right and privilege to expel you, to kick you out, to harm you in repayment for what you did to me? Is it my right to do that? No, because it's God who has the right to get revenge. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's both in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and in the New Testament. God is the one who is the perfect judge, not me, not you, not Joseph. And so am I in the place of God? The answer is no, I'm not. Because I'm trusting God to work this out. I'm doing that. God brought me here to save you, and I'm going to keep saving you. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph is saying, look, you don't have to be afraid. I'll keep taking care of you. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to take revenge. Don't be afraid because God's in charge and God has led us to this place. God has brought us together. God took the evil that you did and he turned it into good. Do you see that? He took your evil, your wickedness, and he did that jujitsu move and he turned it into good. He didn't tell you to do evil. He didn't say that what you did was evil. He just you, he didn't say that it was good. Rather, he took the evil that you did and he turned it into something good. 
Someone said it this way. His name is John Golden Gay. He's a great Old Testament Hebrew scholar. He says that Joseph is the embodiment of Romans 8.28. Frank, put that slide up. Joseph is the embodiment of Romans 8.28. And some of you are right away going, oh, aha. Romans 8.28, one of those verses a lot of Christians memorize, especially when we go through hard times. Can you read this with me? Say this verse with me right now. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. This verse gives us so much hope. It says that for those who love God, God makes all the things of our lives work together for good. He's not saying all the things of our lives are good because a lot of them stink. A lot of them are painful. A lot of them really, really hurt. A lot of them are just flat out wrong and evil. But God is able to take all the things of our lives and work them together for good. And the thing that's interesting is that some of you memorize this in the old King James Version, and we know that God works all things together for good. And the English Standard Version, the New International Version, others say, we know that all things work together for good. It sounds like they just happen to fall together and work out good. No, it's a divine passive. It's the idea that God makes it happen. And by not stating God is doing it, he's actually drawing so much attention on God because he is the one who's working it all out. He's mixing it together like someone baking a cake. All the ingredients, salt is salty, it's great, but man, you can't eat cups of it. You just need a little bit of it. And sugar is great too, and you can have cups and cups of that, but then you'll be pounds and pounds heavier, so you gotta watch that. And, and then there's eggs, they're kind of yucky when they're raw. And, and then there's other flavorings, and vanilla is really strong, and butter is great, but you don't wanna eat sticks and sticks of it, I hope. And you know, there's all this stuff, but in the right proportions, mixed together, blended together, baked at the right temperature. Chocolate cake is wonderful. Have you had baking chocolate? Have you eaten any of that lately? I love chocolate. If it ain't chocolate, it ain't dessert. That's for sure. But the truth of the matter is, is that baking chocolate is bitter. And yet, in the right proportion with the other ingredients, it can be a delicious thing. This verse is stating a principle that we see over and over in Scripture, especially in the life of Joseph, that if God is in charge, he is working all things together for good even if you and I can't see it right now. Even if the circumstance that we're in is not good by itself. It's not good that that person abused you. It's not good that that spouse left you. It's not good that the boss didn't promote you. It's not good that there was a financial loss because of the mismanagement of your financial planner. It's not good that there was persecution. It's not good that there was suffering that came. It was not good that you were neglected. These things are horrible and they're wrong and unjust. But God can work those things, as horrible as they are, and add other things to them and together out of all of that, when he mixes it and bakes it, make something good. He's able to do that. And that's why Joseph is able to let go of, the, of vengeance and revenge He's able to take what happened and say, I'll own it. I'll accept it. And he's willing to give. And he's willing to sacrifice. And he's willing to bless his family. He's willing to do that. 
And that's how he was able to climb out of that pit of bitterness. Because he could take the suffering that he encountered and he could give. He could let go of getting revenge and he could sacrifice for the good of others. Why? Because he knew that God was working all things together for good. And you may say, well, that's good. This verse is, I see that in Joseph's life. That definitely happened in Joseph's life. But I don't know that that's true for me. I don't know that what Romans 8.28 is true for me. What's true is this. If you love God and you're called according to his purpose, in other words, you're a Christian, you're someone that's following Christ and God's working his will and plan in your life, then this is true for you. And the thing that you and I need to remember in all of this is that God wants to work in your life and my life that way. You say, how do do you know that? Joseph lived thousands of years ago. How could that be true in my life today in 21st century America? I know it's true because of the greater Joseph that we read about in Scripture. What I'm talking about is we've mentioned over the weeks of looking at Joseph's life that there's a, a tremendous dramatic parallel between Joseph's life and the life of Jesus. And we see both of them being sent on a mission. Joseph sent to Egypt by God to rescue his family and Jesus is sent from heaven to earth to rescue sinners. And we see both of them betrayed and both of them being abused and both of them being put in great danger and suffering. Jesus on the cross, Joseph in prison and in in slavery and Jesus dying on the cross in our place. We see both of them forgiving, Joseph letting go. You don't need to be afraid. He, he says, I'm willing to forgive. He's willing to, to carry, hold the burden of this suffering that I've gone through, this injustice I've endured. I'm willing to do that. And we see Jesus on the cross. And what did he say as they were nailing him to the cross? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We see both Joseph and Jesus forgiving. Joseph forgiving his brothers. Jesus forgiving me and forgiving you. Forgiving everyone who's willing to trust in him. We see Joseph settling his family in Goshen, the prime real estate, the best farmland in all of Egypt. Well fertile, you know, well watered, very fertile soil there in the Nile Delta. Settling his family there, protecting and providing for them. Jesus taking the family of God, making them his forever family. Settling them in the kingdom of God, giving them a home in heaven, preparing a place for them. Jesus doing that. And so when I understand that, no, I'm not Joseph, but I can be a child of God. No, I'm not someone like Joseph that's sold into slavery, living in ancient Egypt, but I am a child of God today because I trust Jesus who gave his life for me today and was willing to forgive me today and he gave me eternal life today. He's preparing a home for me today and he's with me today. Then I can carry the burden of the hurt that I've suffered with God's help. I can let go of that punishment and that justice and that, that vengeance that I believe I deserve. I can let go of that 
and I can put myself under the authority of God and understand that vengeance belongs to him and that he will sustain me and he will protect me and he will provide for me and he's making me like his son Jesus because that's the good that's talked about here in this verse. Conform us to the image of his son. When Joseph says to his brothers, you know, God took your evil and he turned it into good, he wasn't just saying, well, you know, you sold me into slavery and I became prime minister. Look how good it is. It's bigger than that. God took your evil and he sold me into, you sold me into slavery and I became prime minister and I'm rescuing you and preserving our family. Isn't that good? Of course it's good. But it's even bigger than that. You sold me into slavery. God made me prime minister. I'm rescuing your family. But I'm not just rescuing your family. I rescued Egypt. I'm rescuing the world. God told Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through his family. And when Joseph rescued his family, he was making it possible for you and I to have a Savior, Jesus. Joseph rescued you, in a sense. Because Jesus, a son of Israel, one of the descendants of Jacob, was protected by the actions of Joseph. He brought about protection for salvation for you and I. Jesus had a family to come from, the lineage of Israel. All of this, God is working a big plan. He's working it all out. If you and I would just trust him, then we can take the suffering we've endured and give it to God, and we can take the resources we have and actually give them away. And as we do that, we will experience a reconciliation and a restoration, and that's God's plan, and that's what brings glory to his name. Not letting people walk all over you. No, not that. But building bridges and reconciling with those who have hurt us. That's the hope we have. It's a give and take thing. Take and give. You understand? That's how we conquer bitterness in our lives as well. That's how you and I can climb out of that pit of bitterness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this privilege of being in your presence, and I thank you for the joy of looking into your word, just spending time this summer thinking about the life of Joseph. And again, we just wonder, is God at work when these setbacks come, when these hardships and roadblocks and detours occur? Is God really working? And the answer is, of course, yes, you are. And Father, I thank you that uh, in the midst of our hardships and setbacks, um, you're faithful and true to preserve us. You turn what's evil into something good. You're able to work it out for good, for your glory and for our betterment. betterment. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to be honest about the bitterness that we face in life, that we would climb out of that pit by trusting you and recognizing that you're in control. Bring glory and honor to your name as we trust you in all of this. And may we become the people who truly are the peacemakers that you say are blessed and are your children. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.